Hi everyone! Left to our own devices, the conference may be over, but you can still watch the recording at cybellum.com conference. Tune in to listen to FDA updates from FDA executives themselves, learn about AI in automotive from NVIDIA, the AI leader, and listen to product security leaders from Philips, Honeywell, CISA, and more. Go to cybellum.com conference and watch the recording for free. See you at the next event! Hi, this is David. And this is Shlomi. And you've tuned into Left to Our Own Devices, the product security podcast. Our guest today is Nidhi Ghani, Medical Device Cybersecurity Fellow, Archimedes Center for Healthcare and Medical Device Cybersecurity at Northeastern University. Nidhi is a seasoned regulatory affairs professional with over 10 years of experience in medical devices and digital health. Nidhi has worked with a diverse portfolio of devices ranging from heart and lung machines to rehabilitation devices to wearables. She currently also works as regulatory affairs software and cybersecurity lead at Imbecta and teaches graduate students <laughs> regulatory product development strategy for digital health and cybersecurity. You're a very busy person. <laughs> Before that, at ICAD, she led the establishment of the Cybersecurity and Data Privacy Program. Nidhi is passionate about human potential and loves to be at the intersection of cutting-edge technology and human health. Incredible background. Nidhi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here and share my thoughts. We're very excited to have you. So you've come a long way from the Visvesvarya Technological University in Karnataka in South India, where, by the way, I happen to be going on vacation this fall, and I'm really looking forward to it. So please share with our listeners your journey from the south of India to working with some of the leading manufacturers in the medical device industry, certification from Harvard University in cybersecurity, and now to a fellowship at the prestigious Archimedes Center for Healthcare and Medical Device Cybersecurity at Northeastern University. Thank you for the introduction. I seem busy, but I'm not I'm not actually very busy. I just want to clear that myth. But my journey, I come from a small town called as Bergami in Karnataka. And I studied biotechnology engineering there. I loved biology since my childhood, but although I had more inclination towards journalism and law and all of that, but the city that I came from, it's a, it's a small town and you wouldn't do anything apart from engineering or medicine. You know, in India, you're either an engineer, you're a doctor or you're a failure. So I decided I would go do biotechnology engineering because I did not want to study medicine. So because I like biology, I studied biotechnology engineering. And then I came to the U.S. initially to study microbiology and immunology for my master's because I had no clue that regulatory affairs existed. Like I'd never heard these words together before. So I just came to study microbiology and immunology. And then I learned that there's regulatory affairs as a major. Then um, when somebody told me that during orientation, I quickly changed my application I knew that oh, this is it. This is the subject I want to study because it had a lot to it, which I was always interested in. And if I can combine uh, my biotechnology engineering background with law, I felt like nothing like it. So I just took a leap of faith because at that point I did not completely understand what regulatory affairs even means. And uh, but yeah, fast forward, I've been in the industry for over eight years, and I think it was uh, one of the best decisions of my life. Wow, incredible. 
and you've come a long way. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yes, I have uh, definitely come a long way because when I started, I started like as a consultant, as a contractor, but eventually I moved towards digital health at the right time, actually. And then also met really good people along the way who trusted me and were ready to provide me with opportunities. And that's how I even like moved towards cybersecurity. And now uh, as a digital health and cybersecurity professional, I already have around three to four years under my belt, which is quite rare for a regulatory professional uh, at this point. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So I'm, I'm curious with, with such a journey, uh, what challenges have you faced along the way? And, and please, if you can share with us uh, how you overcame them. I think as a regulatory affairs professional, one of the major challenges you face would be to lead uh, without authority, because many times there is a uh, engineers and the other team does not completely want to reveal all the information for you. It feels like an inhibition for some reason. Regulatory affairs is seen as an inhibition, but if you use regulatory affairs uh, strategically, I think they can be a very good catalyst towards your product development as well as uh, regulatory approvals. Those have been my challenges because whenever I've worked for startups, especially the mindset is, you know, like regulatory is inhibiting innovation. So they're not completely revealing all the information. And especially with digital health, the development is so agile that you have to be always involved, be in the meeting. So I think advocating that for myself has been I would say, challenge. But now I'm glad that at Embecta, uh, the tides are very different. Regulatory is involved in uh, decision-making. They're involved in product development. So it gives a good understanding of the whole entire life cycle. I think that would be my major challenge. The other major challenge that I faced was when I just entered the industry for digital health when I was at Howard Innovations Lab, we were working on wearables, actually even hearables, you can say, because we were trying to analyze heart rate and respiration rate using your your birds. At that point, it was particularly challenging because the software regulations and cybersecurity regulations were not yet in picture. And this was in 2019. And I was also a little bit naive. <laughs> I think I still have naive, but it is more like I didn't know how to go about this whole situation because there are no regulations, but the technology is so forward. Trying to bridge that gap between the CEO and the regulator was very challenging for me, but also a lot of growth happened during that period. So I think these were two challenges that I clearly remember of. Interesting. So without going into details that you can't discuss, can you give us an overview of how you spearheaded the development of the Cybersecurity and Privacy Compliance Program at ICAD? one of the world's first AI, ML, FDA-approved algorithms for detecting and predicting breast cancer two years in advance. It sounds incredible. Yes, it is. It is an incredible technology because, like you said, it, it was the first algorithm that was cleared by the FDA. And that program, although it was a software as a medical device, it sits on the hospital network, right? So the challenges of that device are multifold. Because more than the device itself posing or having cybersecurity vulnerabilities, it was the network that it would be exposed to. And also during troubleshooting and customer service as well, there are a lot of challenges with security there. But there, interestingly, when I joined, they were at a phase where the device was already cleared, but the security program was not ready. You would think that, you know, the world's first 
algorithm is cleared and it would have all a duck syndrome for cybersecurity. But that was not the case. Uh, I was hired to set up the program. And it was challenging because, again, at that point, regulations were not in picture for cybersecurity. Now, after the omnibus bill, manufacturers have started to take it seriously, right? take cybersecurity seriously. But back then, uh, nobody would talk to you. Nobody would talk to me when I'm trying to reach out to people within the company saying, hey, we got to do this program, right? But I had to learn from scratch, understand different regulations, understand the technology, and then build a program around it. So now when I say it, it, it sounds like, oh, that's so obvious. But back then to even realize that, oh, I need to first start with identifying what different assets the company has was itself a revelation for me. And then after that, it became simpler once I had the framework, right? Identifying the assets for the company and then going through building the risk management. Uh, I, along with my VP, we literally built the risk management matrix from scratch for the security standpoint, right? So once building the risk management from there on, trying to use the NIST framework, developing all the gap assessments to see where we actually are, and then going on from there to figure out, okay, uh, because we have these assets, now that the risk management is ready, how are we going to implement it? Also segregating the information security management system from the product security management system. Because uh, most of the times when we are talking about security, the ISO 27001 is the one that suddenly comes into play. But for product security, that's uh, not the case. You can literally build it from scratch. That I think is the beauty of a medical device industry as well, because you can build your quality management systems the way you would like and the way you can rationalize as well. So the same with product system, uh, product security framework as well. It was challenging, but I think towards the end building that framework, it took about one and a half year to do it, to do that. And it will be interesting to know how much that is being utilized, but it was in a very nascent phase of maturity, right? Because we now build that framework for implementation. That's interesting because what we found was that initially as the regulations were coming out in the medical device arena for cybersecurity, companies were doing like, as you mentioned, you know, working on some, let's say, homegrown tools or bringing in some tools even from the IT side and trying to retrofit them back for product security. And we, Shlomi and I, we've been at Cybellum now for over a year and a half. And one of the first things that we did was to take a look at medical device companies and to see, okay, how can we take all of these tools and come up with something that would be unified into exactly what you mentioned, and I don't know if Shlomi caught it, the product security management system, <laughs> the PSMS as we call it. So mm-hmm. very interesting. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's why you said you said it sounds simple, but I don't think it sounds simple at all. Like it's it's a very challenging riddle that you try to solve, and and sounds uh, very rewarding as well to to solve it. So you, you mentioned the omnibus bill, and I'm curious uh, that the, the Senate passed the omnibus bill back in December of 2022, which to some degree changed the landscape for medical device cybersecurity, as you mentioned. And the FDA, of course, followed with uh, its own guidelines at the end of March, which included the announcement about the refuse to accept policy, which was also a, a first in a lot of ways. So for those who are still learning the guidelines, what do you think are the most important points that medical device security teams should pay attention to? The entire cybersecurity guidance, right? <laughs> they have to pay attention to the whole thing. <laughs> point, yeah. and, uh, but the RDA, I think, is interesting because now you cannot escape from not submitting cybersecurity a piece of the submission. 
just like there is safety there is security it's very hard to imagine or digest that in one go but time and again i think repeating that just like how safety is a beast and behemoth by itself the whole testing happens for safety we have to do that for security as well so these are like two separate systems but still talking to each other because safety and security are going to affect each other ultimately but talking about the rpa itself uh, of course the s bomb has become very important now uh, where you are tracking different third party components especially after log4j and also the post market surveillance piece has become important because now for fba submissions you don't really submit post market surveillance plans especially for class 2 devices but with cybersecurity piece you are also now submitting the post market surveillance cybersecurity plan and there are like multiple pieces to it itself also because it's a whole system by itself right where you're looking at vulnerability disclosure you're also looking at patching and updating then you're also looking at what kind of updates can i do when you know my devices are already in the market or should i recall them so it's a lot ingrained with the safety recall system as well in house that you're building for your company but the rda itself i would i would just uh, stress on three points which would be s bomb the post market surveillance plans and procedures that are in place along with that i think you also have to provide a cybersecurity management plan where you have assessed all your risk through the threat models right so th- that becomes key and uh, using this you can showcase how well you have designed your system as well because the last question when we were talking about when you said it sounds simple but it is complicated because you're also baking the device right you're baking the device with security it's not like a bolt on feature more like a baked in feature for your submission your design and development i think it was at hisac i had a conversation with dr uh, susan schwartz from the fda and one of the questions i asked her is okay so the manufacturers have all of this responsibility to comply you know where do you see the responsibility on the side of the asset owners who are the hmos right or the h mm-hmm. uh, hdos Uh, the healthcare delivery organizations. And she said, that's going to come too. <laughs> you know, you have to take little steps, let's say, even though the RTA is a big step and then the, the pre-market that, uh, well, the, the new guidelines that are supposed to come out in October or September are, are pretty big steps. And then they ha- you have the other side, which is if we shift left and we go to the embedded device component providers, right? And some of them can be small companies out of China, Taiwan, Germany, U.S., and and they're providing little pieces to the puzzle but those pieces also have to have sbombs and they also have to be checked and the, and and so at the end of the day the the medical device manufacturer becomes like an integrator that has to check everything and has to require to some degree that the suppliers they do business with will be willing to provide their ip to the medical device manufacturers which isn't the easiest thing in the world but it's something that now they're going to be regulated and they're going to have to do so some of the uh, medical device manufacturers we talked to they mentioned and and you you touched on this earlier they mentioned some friction between the device developers the, the people who are programming the devices creating the software integrating the pieces and the regulatory affairs as an internal challenge within the company there's a bit of a tug of war Uh, would you agree and and how do you think that issues between these groups can best be resolved oh yeah i i do agree in the past for sure now i think as companies are maturing 
And as regulatory is uh, shifting left towards the design and development, they are getting more involved in decision making as well. Uh, you're also seeing uh, quite a few companies hiring for chief regulatory officers now, which talks about how important uh, this function is for not marketing sales, of course, but without the clearance, the, uh, the business is not uh, happening, right? So that ship is definitely there. A lot of new programs are also coming up where colleges are teaching regulatory affairs. Uh, so that dissemination of information and also that capability is there. Apart from that, I think I do agree in the past where companies did not always involve regulatory affairs professionals and probably rightly so, because if you look in the past, regulatory affairs professionals, they generally came from a history background or a BA in English background. They did not, they did not have domain knowledge or specific industry knowledge of medical devices or even pharmaceuticals or biologics that matter uh, for that matter. But today, tides are changing. And if you look at the job descriptions, you're looking at people, they want people from life sciences, engineering background. And this is where I think the change is coming into picture because when uh, a regulatory affairs professional knows product development, they can understand technology. They are able to uh, contribute to the design and development decisions or influence those decisions as well. So I think that shift is there and I'm glad that it is happening. I'm also seeing like good friendly relations between marketing and regulatory uh, these days, at least in MVECTA, right? Because that's a good, I think, a combination for people to go about understanding each other's messages and requirements because ultimately regulatory affairs has to look at regulations, but also make sure that the business is running. So it's an art to strike that balance. And we are learning as well. Everybody is also open to understanding that as well. So I think from that standpoint, the shift in industry is helping everybody. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you, you put it so nicely. I think these are really the, the challenges and, and the solutions, as, as you mentioned. I mean, it, it reminds me of, we talked uh, to Chris Gates on, on the podcast here, who was also uh, one of our advisors. And he, he works a lot on cybersecurity of medical devices. And he builds these amazing teams of professionals. So, so we ask them, how do you deal with the shortage of cybersecurity professionals in the market? Everyone is talking about not having enough people. How do you build these incredible teams? And he said that at some point he gave up on trying to find cybersecurity people. And he just thought, okay, I'll take engineers that know the ins and outs of the medical devices and teach them cybersecurity. Because that's the much more effective way to, to do it anyway. So it reminded me of exactly what you just said. So I'm uh, curious about uh, regulations in general. Our listeners, it's probably the, the number one thing they're interested in. So beyond the U.S. regulations, which we discussed, what other major regulations should we look out for in 2023 and beyond from you know, the EU, Japan, China, other places? I think most countries and continents are following suit and producing their own cybersecurity regulations and AI SMD regulations because technology has been technology has been moving forward after the pandemic or rather it has accelerated the growth by at least a decade and the regulators are catching up and they are doing a good job I, I think because uh, especially when collaborators are, or regulators are working with IMDRF and putting out new regulations for security and SAMD. The regulations are pretty similar with each other, what I see, because 
when we do a gap assessment i think if you're if you're ticking certain boxes like say s bomb threat models risk assessment post market surveillance plans uh the whole of cyber supply chain that you're looking at with s bombs and supplier agreements and all of those so these these are i think the main pillars of security uh that is also followed across by different uh regulators as well and even with so- software as a medical device and ai regulations as well there are similar regulations that have come up but the classification is different in us uh, class 1 2 3 are different from what happens in china japan EU and Australia but I don't see any major differences between the regulation I think it's good to harmonize these standards because for businesses and manufacturers as well it's it's also a cost saving effort because no point in you know having different regulations for each one of them but I guess the data is a bigger topic of conversation right where is the data going to stored in what country it is going to be stored uh, how can we move it across borders and all of that but i think the holy grail of design and development for security safety performance pretty much remains uh, the same across all the continents interesting uh, we've been we've been reading up a lot about the cra and oh what's the one that we're seeing a lot in japan now imdrf i think it's imdrf yeah is popular recently yeah and you're right what we've seen is that a lot of it is almost like a copy of of the main points mm-hmm. and i think you know it's it's so that each regulatory body in each country will have their say but at the end of the day if, mm-hmm. if you're going to you know there's probably let's say a highest level and if you keep to that then you've taken care of all the others you just have to you know fill in the boxes and so on interesting so to a personal uh, question what was the most amazing or unbelievable moment that you've had in your career to date that is interesting because at different places it has been different like when i was working at a startup it was about me being the only regulatory affairs professional uh, that itself was a bigger feat for me because i was very early on in the career and working through different engineers and looking at the product development piece that gives me a lot of happiness i'm a hands on product development person so every time i'm working with product development it gives me a lot of happiness and that i think would be a feat in itself but apart from that when i was working from smith and few i handled a large project of where we moved the manufacturing facility from massachusetts to costa rica about 400 products queues so that was an amazing project that i worked on because you were you were working with different countries of the world and trying to get their validation plans ready manufacturing audits ready so that that those uh, juggling those multiple Our deliverables were very interesting. Costa Rica is a nice place. Yes, but unfortunately, <laughs> I, I did not get to visit. <laughs> you didn't have to go down to regulate the uh, the site and uh, to vet the people who were working. <laughs> unfortunately, no. The, the trade commerce was handling that uh, that part. But nevertheless, I think it was nice to understand just different regulations with manufacturing as well. Towards the uh, after the product development, what happens in manufacturing? that that has been a bigger fun for me that's a great story so nidhi one last question you are the co-founder of force foundation of research in careers and education we both are, are very passionate about education so can you please share some information about this organization yeah definitely so like i said in india uh, we are either an engineer or doctor or a failure So this uh, particular uh, venture 
is to provide exposure towards different career opportunities that are available. So we do career development programs and they are different from career counselors, right? We we work in the career development space, which means we have a selection-based program. So we work with 10 to 15 students every cohort and we uh, go through their interests, skills, learning styles and all of that. And then also then teach them real world uh, case studies in the STEAM area, which is science, engineering, mathematics, management, and arts using Harvard style case method studies. And there we teach them skills like communication, creativity, collaboration, critical thinking. So once the students go through that module, we put them through projects. And that's where you see, you can see magic happen because the students are now engaged in the topics of interest that they are interested in. So then they work with different mentors as well as their peers to work on like identifying, say, one of the projects that we did was history of fashion. So it was so interesting to go through how fashion has touched different parts of the world, how Britishers and colonized and brought whiteness in, in all of the colors and clothing as well. So such projects. So that way the students then engage and they get to know more about their interests and then they have clarity and confidence in choosing what career would be good for them so it's like a pre it's a pre-grad just like there's preschool there's pre-university it's a pre-grad interesting wow fascinating so with that we we, we have to thank you this has been you know fascinating and I, I must tell you it's it's really rare to find someone who has your kind of expertise in in uh, regulatory affairs but it's even more rare to find someone who's so articulate and, and you know, explain it uh, so beautifully. So, so thank you for both and for the time today. And the journey, the journey is incredible. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting to see where you are in 10 years. I think it's going to be, uh, you're on a roll. <laughs> it's really great to see. Thank you. Thank you. And it was really nice to talk to both of you and then really understand what cybersecurity entails and how medical device manufacturers have to bake in security during their design and development because it's not a bolting on feature. And I guess that's the bigger elephant in the room as well, right? Because as a regulator, you're trying to build that mindset of building security right from the beginning, right from design and development. Whereas uh, the tussle between marketing as well as engineers is why can't we do it later on or can we do it post 510K? So I think those questions are, uh, or, or rather, those, yeah, those, those are the key points that I want to highlight on as we ship left, the better we are going to get. So yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much for being on the show. Left to Our Own Devices is brought to you by Cybellum. To learn more, visit cybellum.com.